to many of you simply because he spent the last two terms in Oxford as a distinct fellow of the Change in Character War Programme. He is a serving officer in uh, the Royal Air Force who has just taken up a new job. You'll need to tell me with two group in. Will the precise time for Tim? Uh, I'm headquarters two group, chief, chief air engineer, SO2 for training and evaluation. It's great. Trips off the tongue. <laughs> <laughs> it tells you everything you need to know. He'll, he'll, he'll get better at saying that. That's why I asked him the question so he can be uh, clear about what he's doing. Anyway, what he's going to speak about today is what he was working on um, over the last few terms, which is going to be published in Air Plan Studies. Um, and the title, as you can see, is The Perception of Victory, How War is Won or Lost in the Mind of the Observer. Thanks to you. <clears throat> Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, as Sir Hugh said, what I'm going to talk about today is the perception of victory, how war is won or lost in the mind of the observer. The more astute of you may have noticed that it's a slightly different subtitle than that advertised on the poster, uh, but be reassured that I will be getting on to Israel's recent experiences of winning and losing the narrative, uh, and we'll come to that in my scope. So I'm going to start with a quotation from Sir Winston Churchill, which he made on 13th of May 1940. And this was from his Blood, Toil, Tears and Sweat speech. You ask what is our aim? I can answer with one word. It is victory. And what Churchill did in that very eloquent turn of phrase was try and distill an unfathomably complex series of, of events, the Second World War, into a binary outcome of victory or defeat. And this is a very human trait. This is something that we like to do, no matter how ambiguous the outcome of war. We like to assure ourselves of who has won and who has lost, who is the victor and who is the vanquished. And the Second World War is an example of a relatively decisive outcome. But what about those conflicts where the outcome isn't quite as decisive? And how do we measure victory? After all, war is not sport. There is no scoreboard, there is no referee, there are frequently no rules, and quite often the antagonists are playing for very different spoils. So how do we determine cognitively which side has been victorious? Now moving to the present day, many of our leaders would have us believe that victory is anachronistic that it's a relic of a bygone age, and that actually it's more important now to focus on tangible outcomes rather than something as outmoded as victory. And recently, David Cameron has been accused of trying to redefine what victory means in order to ameliorate what has been described to some as a complete and utter disaster in Afghanistan. Now, despite what our leaders today would want us to think, Victory resonates. The idea of victory is important to people and it is um, a very powerful way for people to make sense of a complex situation. So it's still important. People will continue to use terms such as victory and defeat. But how is it determined? How do people decide, how do groups of observers decide which side has won and lost in war? And how does one group's perception become the dominant perception? We're not helped in uh, the theory of war and warfare by some very vague terminology. 
So we often read words such as victory, success, to win, and conversely, defeat, to lose, and failure, or vanquished. Now, many writers will use these words interchangeably without defining what they mean by any of them. Other writers will use them to mean subtly different things, but again, will not define what they mean by their use of the terminology. Also, even when writers define what they mean by victory, they actually often define it as something which doesn't accord to the popular perception of the outcome. So a writer will argue that such and such has won in so and so war, but actually that is meaningless because the popular perception is the converse outcome. What is clear is after every conflict, a dominant perception tends to ensue. And even when writers are revisionists and they argue against that perception, they often do so in the knowledge and stating that they are arguing against the dominant perception. And in so doing, they actually reinforce the dominant perception. So for the purposes of this talk, I'm going to refer to the dominant perception of the outcome of war as the perceived outcome. What's also clear, as I hope to demonstrate in my uh, seminar, is that this perceived outcome is important, it matters. It's not just public opinion, because it actually has the power to influence downstream events. And I'm hoping to demonstrate that the perceived outcome has the power to influence tangible reality, perhaps as much, if not more so, than objective reality. So, the scope of this talk is in two parts. The first part is entitled, What Does It Mean to Win in War? And I'm going to use the four levels of war, which I'll describe, in order to try and discern whether objective success at any one of those four levels generally engenders this perception of victory. So whether we can, whether we, whether we can identify causality between objective success and the ensuing perception. I'll then talk you through my proposed model to try and rationalise the outcome of war, to try and rationalise the linkage, if you like, between a perceived outcome and <coughs> the objective outcome. <coughs> and then I'll move on to part two, which is my comparative case study. And this is where I'm going to talk about the Second Lebanon War and the Gaza War. And the reason I've chosen those two wars is because they're relatively contemporary. They both occurred within the last ten years. They both involved Israel as the... Uh, one of the main antagonists, and they both involve similar antagonists. They both involve non-state actors, Hamas and Hezbollah, and obviously they occurred in a similar uh, geopolitical environment. So I'm using those to compare because they are very similar in terms of many of the, uh, the underlying metrics. What's also very important about those two conflicts is they had very different perceived outcomes. The Second Lebanon War, was perceived, or has been perceived as, some would argue, a catastrophic defeat for Israel, but there are different views. And the Gaza war generally is perceived by commentators as being a great success or a victory for Israel. And I'm going to show that despite those perceived outcomes, objective reality indicates that the strategic reality after those two conflicts was largely comparable, and you could actually argue that it was more favourable after the Second Lebanon War. So there's a dichotomy there. 
And I'll go on to talk about Israel's varying approaches during those two wars. And I'm hoping to describe to you how Israel <coughs> engendered a perception of victory following uh, the Gaza war and how their approach conspired to engender a perception of failure after the Second Lebanon War. So firstly, what does it mean to win in war? Well, I'm going to go back to our foremost theorist of war and warfare, Karl von Clausewitz, and he said, quite unambiguously, that victory was the preservation of one's own fighting force and the destruction of the enemies. That's very clear, it's unambiguous, no further discussion needed. And obviously, if he was right, that would be the end of my seminar. But I don't think it is right now. <coughs> because actually, the chances in the wars of today and tomorrow of an antagonist being destroyed are very low. Israel couldn't destroy Hamas. They couldn't destroy Hezbollah. The coalition forces today cannot destroy Al-Qaeda because these groups are based on an idea. Their power derives from an idea which cannot be destroyed. And so we have to look for some other definition of victory. Also, in the wars of today and tomorrow, our antagonists are very unlikely to acquiesce to their own defeat. Hamas and Hezbollah, they didn't surrender. Al-Qaeda will not surrender. The Taliban will not surrender. These organisations which acclaim their own victory no matter what the objective outcome is, because it's important for, them to have to, to, for their supporters to view them as being successful. So we can't rely on an antagonist surrendering in many of the wars of today. Also, no transnational body is able or willing to arbitrate. We have bodies such as the UN. However, they do not arbitrate between who has won or lost in war. So as we can see, victory in the conflicts of today and tomorrow are likely to be mutable, divisive, and uh, very subjective. So, how do groups of observers decide which side in war has been victorious? We can't rely on transnational bodies to tell us. If we can't rely on the antagonists themselves to tell us, then we have to make our own minds up. And this is exactly what observers do. They make their own minds up based upon what they see, what they hear, and what they read. So, surely you would think that the perceived outcome, people's perceptions of who wins and loses in war, are based on some form of objective success. Clearly you would think that if an antagonist is viewed as being successful objectively, ergo, they will be viewed as the victor. However, history is replete with examples where this simply is not the case. So I'm going to look at the four levels of war, which is the structure that we usually use to evaluate war, and I'm going to see, I'm going to demonstrate that actually you can achieve success objectively at any one of these levels of war, and yet still be perceived as having lost, or having been defeated, or having failed. So I'm going to start with a tactical level of war. This is really the, the lowest level of war. This is war on the ground. And I'm going to use the definition which has been supplied by British Defence Doctrine. And British Defence Doctrine defines a tactical level of war as where formations, units and individuals confront an opponent or situation with the, in the joint operational area. So this is very much about the physicality of fighting. This is where troops, airmen and maritime components fight 
physically. And this is very closely related to the operational level of war, which I'm going to look at at the same time. And that's defined as the level at which campaigns are planned, conducted, and sustained. So again, it's the, the military contribution. Now, you would think that the superior fighting force that achieves the most favourable military outcome would be deemed as having been victorious in war. However, Colin Gray, in his book, Another Bloody Century, exhorts us to remember Indochina, recall Vietnam, and do not forget Algeria, where, in all three cases, the United States and France were very clearly successful at the tactical and operational levels of war, and yet have very clearly been deemed as having been defeated. These have all been perceived as defeats, despite the United States winning almost every engagement from an objective point of view in uh, Vietnam. So clearly, success lies somewhere else within the four levels of war. Clearly, in order to be viewed as a victor, in order to be viewed as being successful, we have to look for objective success elsewhere. So let's move up and let's have a look at the military strategic level of war. Now, British Defence Doctrine defines this as the military contribution as part of an integrated approach to the achievement of national policy goals. So this is looking at all levers of government power, and it's looking at the military contribution to those levers. So surely, if our military were, or an antagonist, were to achieve objective success at the military strategic level of war and achieve their military ends, surely then they would be perceived as having succeeded or having been victorious in war. But again, this is simply not the case. And history gives us plenty of examples where this is so. Most recently in the war in Afghanistan, we can see that the military contribution from a military strategic point of view was actually phenomenally successful. The military objective initially was to topple the Taliban so that Afghanistan would be no safe haven for Al-Qaeda. And this was achieved in short order. In fact, by November of 2001, the Taliban, having fought their last uh, stand, if you like, in Kandahar, uh, were toppled from power. They constituted um, no authority within Afghanistan. And shortly thereafter, in December, Al-Qaeda fought its last uh, main battle within Tora Bora, Battle of Tora Bora. And so by the end of 2001, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda had effectively either been disrupted or uh, removed from Afghanistan. And it was only after that point, after an interim administration had been set up and effectively coalition forces were supporting uh, another constituted authority, that an insurgency began. And ever since late 2001, <laughs> after which... Uh, Taliban and Al-Qaeda uh, were suppressed. In 2003, the insurgency began. And it's really 2003 onwards where we fought the insurgency rather than a war in the classical sense. So actually, from a military strategic point of view, we've been very successful in Afghanistan, certainly in achieving the initial military objectives. But despite that, the war in Afghanistan is likely to be perceived, I would argue, as a failure for the coalition forces. 
And we can see here some recent texts on the subject which certainly reinforce that view. So we've got losing small wars, uh, the British military failure in Iraq and Afghanistan, and uh, war against the Taliban, uh, which holds the subtitle, Why It All Went Wrong in Afghanistan. Not did it go wrong in Afghanistan, why it went wrong. Obviously insinuating that we all agree that it has indeed gone wrong. So we can see that success at the military strategic level of war, again, does not necessarily engender a perception of victory. So let's look a little higher. Let's look at the, the highest level of war. Let's look at the grand strategic level of war. And it certainly makes sense that if you were to achieve your political ends, your political goals, then surely you would be deemed as having achieved success in war. And British defence doctrine defines this at the level at which national resources are allocated to achieve government policy goals. And of course, Clausewitz himself said that war is a continuation of policy by other means. We never go to war simply to destroy our opponents. We go to war to achieve something political. And surely you would argue that were we to achieve those political ends, we would be perceived as having been successful, no matter what the military, the tactical, the operational outcomes were. But again, history provides us with examples whereby success at the grand strategic level of war still does not engender a perception of victory. And a good example is the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905. Here, Japan fought uh, a modern European army uh, and navy in the form of Imperial Russia, and Japan had only recently modernised along European lines and were very much considered to be the underdog. However, European powers were surprised and, and somewhat horrified when Japan were successful from an objective point of view, both at the tactical level of war and the operational level of, level of war, and also from a military strategic point of view, and indeed from a grand strategic point of view. Japan actually achieved its war aims. It exceeded what it originally hoped in many ways to extract from Imperial Russia. Russia uh, withdrew from Manchuria, they ceded Port Stanley to uh, Japan, and also Russia recognised that Korea lay within the Japanese sphere of influence. Now this, you would argue, is, is a great outcome for Japan. However, it wasn't viewed to be the case in Japan itself. And in fact, all levels of Jap Japanese society were extremely discontented with this outcome. So much so that there was rioting in many major cities in Japan, including Tokyo, and there was even a march on the Imperial Palace itself. The reason for this malcontent was that it was perceived by Japanese society that the cost paid by Japan during the war was so great that it wasn't properly recompensed by Russia in terms of financial reparations and territorial acquisitions. So, in effect, Japanese people felt as though they'd been shortchanged. They felt as though they'd been conned out of victory. And it, was, it felt like a defeat to many uh, Japanese people. In fact, in Yokohama, it was said that only two people celebrated victory, and they were both Frenchmen. What that says about the French, I'm not sure. Um, so here we can see 
even at the grand strategic level of war, even when you achieve what you set out to achieve, you don't necessarily engender a perception of victory amongst some groups of observers. So where does that leave us? We've been through every level of war, and we can see from historical examples that success at any one of those levels of war does not necessarily result in a perception of having won, at least by some groups of observers. And we can see, certainly in the case of the Russo-Japanese War, that that perception is hugely important. Because that perception in that case resulted in civil breakdown. So, what then does engender a perception of victory? And this is what I'm hoping to answer now. So clearly, we've seen from our historical examples that there is a military outcome. We can aggregate, objectively, military success or failure into an objective understanding of what the military outcome is. And it's logical to view that in terms of success or failure, because <laughs> it is objective. So we know that there is a military outcome. But we know that this on its own doesn't engender a perception of success. We know also that there is a strategic outcome. There is achievement of national policy goals. And again, this can be achieved without necessarily achieving a positive military outcome or vice versa. So that, again, is a separate outcome. And it's logical to measure that in terms of failure or success because it can be measured relatively objectively in terms of national policy goals and their achievement. However, we can see from the historical examples that there is another outcome. There's this perceived outcome. And whilst it's clear that this perceived outcome will be based upon the military outcome and the strategic outcome, we can see that there's something else. It's a function of something else. And we're not sure exactly what that is. What is clear also is that actually it's not those three outcomes that matter so much as the benefits or perhaps the disadvantages that they engender. So we've seen in some of our historical examples that you can achieve a positive military outcome, you can achieve a positive strategic outcome, but actually in terms of the overall benefits, they have been trumped in the case of the Russo-Japanese war by the perceived outcome. So we need to view the outcomes in terms of the benefits that they provide. But what is this question mark? What is this other factor that informs the perceived outcome? And I'm going to argue that the perceived outcome is not just a function of what is achieved, but perhaps more importantly, how, is it, how it is achieved. The actual approach taken by the military force which is engaged in war. And as my examples, I'm going to use the Second Lebanon War and the Gaza War. So in 2006... The Lebanon War was uh, a 34-day conflict between Israel and uh, Hezbollah, which is characterised by certainly the United States and Israel as a terrorist organisation. And it was precipitated by the kidnap of two IDF soldiers. Uh, this was a cross-border raid by Hezbollah forces, uh, and it also resulted in the death of three Israeli personnel, and a further five deaths uh, when a botched rescue operation 
was, uh, was attempted. Now, this war has been considered to be, in some eyes, a national catastrophe. In fact, the leaders of Shin Bet and Mossad described it as such. And they described it as a national catastrophe and that Israel suffered a critical defeat. Furthermore, there was a palpable loss of confidence and pride within Israel after this conflict. And this resulted in the Vinograd Commission, which was set up in order to understand the mistakes that had been made by the Israeli Defence Forces during uh, that conflict. Conversely, Hezbollah were lauded as a, effectively a prototype of a modern hybrid challenger. And they were elevated to an almost mystical level of military competence by many commentators. And the Secretary General of Hezbollah, Hassan Nasrallah, was popularly ordained as the uh, most popular leader since uh, Arab leader since Nasser. Just a year and a half later, in 2008, December 2008, Israel again went to war, this time with Hamas, also characterised by uh, the United States and Israel, uh, and Israel as a terrorist organisation, also a non-state actor. Like Hezbollah, they did have representation within uh, national government. Uh, but this time, things were even more difficult for Israel, insomuch as, whereas Lebanon is sparsely populated in the south, uh, undulating, rocky, the Gaza Strip is densely populated, one of the most densely populated urban areas in the world. And this conflict would take place largely in urbanised areas, extremely complicate, complicated operating environment. And it was described by Ron Tira, uh, who wrote shortly after the, the conflict, as one big minefield, IEDs, traps and tunnels in almost every block. And based upon Israel's recent experience in Lebanon, and due to this even more complicated operating environment, many commentators were expecting this to be yet another costly military misadventure for Israel. And many were expecting failure. But after the 23-day conflict, actually, the reverse happened. And Israel were perceived as being victors by many. And certainly, many com commentators after the conflict have uh, referred to Israel and IDF in particular as a paragon of institutional learning and urban warfare. And many lessons have been uh, attempted to, to, to be learned from Israel and the IDF uh, in this conflict. So we can see the Second Lebanon War has clearly been perceived by many as a failure for Israel and the IDF, uh, whereas the Gaza, Gaza War has been perceived as a tremendous success. But if we look at the objective outcomes, again, there is a question, because objective reality does not seem to agree with these perceived outcomes. So in Lebanon, following the Second Lebanese War, the rocket attacks, which preceded uh, the Second Lebanon War, almost entirely ceased. And uh, the northern border of Israel remains uh, relatively quiet to this day. Furthermore, uh, UN Resolution 1701 was enacted, which resulted in up to 15,000 UNIFIL personnel being deployed 
uh, in southern Lebanon, up to, up to the Litani River, along with a further 15,000 Lebanese, Lebanese Armed Forces personnel, in order, ostensibly, to uh, remove Hezbollah from uh, that area. Now, it could be argued that Hezbollah is still present and still active within uh, southern Lebanon, and they haven't been disarmed. <coughs> However, the fact is that the northern border of Israel has remained quiet to this day. Gaza, on the other hand, is very different. Post-conflict rocket attacks ceased almost immediately, and within three years had increased to pre-conflict levels. And this resulted in a reprisal operation by Israel, entitled Operation Pillar of Defence. Moreover, the Gaza war culminated with a unilateral ceasefire and withdrawal of uh, the IDF from the Gaza Strip. So, objectively, the strategic outcomes for Israel in the two conflicts appear to favour Second Lebanon War over the Gaza War. Why, then, has the perception been contrary to this? So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at, again, the four levels of war, I'm going to look at Israel's approach, the IDF's approach, during the two conflicts to try and understand how their approach may have engendered a perception of victory in the Gaza war and how their approach in the Second Lebanon war uh, may have conspired against them to engender a perception of failure. So firstly, in order to understand the grand strategic uh, uh, level of war, we need to understand what the goals were, what the strategic objectives were for Israel in both conflicts. So in Lebanon, the key goal, as stated by Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, was uh, the return of the hostages. That was, that was key. Further to that, there was a complete ceasefire, expulsion of Hezbollah from the area, and a deployment of Lebanese army in all of southern Lebanon. So extremely, extremely hard to enact objectives. Conversely, in Gaza, the goals were to strike a direct and hard blow against Hamas, to increase the deterrent strength of the IDF, and to enable an improved and more stable security situation for residents of southern Israel <coughs> over the long term. So we can see the difference in the two goals is very marked. Although they describe similar outcomes in their character, the Lebanon goals were measurable, they were difficult to achieve, whereas those strategic goals in uh, Gaza were relatively vague and modest. And what Israel did, perhaps unknowingly, is set the heart by so, bar so high for success in uh, the Second Lebanon War that they were bound fall far short of it. And indeed, the Prime Minister had actually set an objective which was impossible to achieve, because the two hostages were likely to be already dead. And if they weren't already dead at that point, uh, they certainly were soon after. Conversely, with Gaza, the goals were set very modestly. They were set such that they could be exceeded relatively easily. So it didn't really matter what the outcomes were of the two wars when measured against each other, it mattered how they were measured against the stated objectives at the outset of the conflict. 
So as we can see in Lebanon, the goals were unrealistic and these sowed the seeds of defeat right from the outset. Because they were unrealistic, because they were unobtainable, the Israeli Defence Forces, they chose a vacillating strategic uh, policy. Vainly chasing these objectives. And indeed, they experienced diminishing returns as the war ground on and mounting casualties. Also, their ongoing lack of fulfilment precluded the IDF from ending the war on its own terms and resulted in accusations of being bogged down in Lebanon, just as the IDF had been bogged down uh, in Lebanon in the first Lebanese war. Whereas in Gaza, the objectives were modest and easily exceeded. And what's more, their early fulfilment enabled a cessation of hostilities at a time of Israel's own choosing. Lost, uh... oh. It's on your screen, is it? Uh, it's on here. It's alright. I'll go on without it. Uh, so the unilateral ceasefire <coughs> fostered the view that victory had already been achieved. Rather than having to wait for UN intervention. And of course, the IDF could not be accused of being bogged down in Gaza, as they had been accused of in Lebanon. So that set the scene. So let's look at the military strategic level of war. Well, Lebanon, being saddled with these improbable aims, chose this vacillating military strategy. They had to keep changing their approach during the war and as the war went on in order to chase these unattainable goals. And this was exacerbated by a poor choice of operational moniker in the Second Lebanon War. The operation was entitled change of direction. And what's more, this operation change of direction was succeeded by operation change of direction 2, 3, 4, 5, up to 11. So it was the intent, I believe, of uh, the operations directorate to give an operational name which conveyed the notion that Israel would change the direction of the politics in the region for its own benefit. However, the opposite was true. Actually, what happened was it conveyed the notion that the IDF, their strategy was changing direction, and indeed had changed direction 11 times. What's more, because the IDF were chasing these improbable aims, they had to improvise. An improvised station introduced risk, and the risk increased casualties. And the result, ultimately, was the IDF appeared to be shambolic and incoherent. And that's certainly the view that's been taken by many, many military commentators. In Gaza, however, being unencumbered by these unobtainable objectives, the IDF was able to enact a set-piece operation, a well-rehearsed operation, which reduced the requirement for improvisation, thus reducing the requirement or the, the uh, existence of risk, thus reducing the number of casualties. And to the military observers, they appeared competent and unified. And of course, that's exactly what they were, because they were working to a very well-rehearsed plan. 
So moving down to the operational level of war, what was the operational approach of the IDF during the Lebanon War? Well, firstly, it started with a massive aerial bombardment, an initial air campaign. Now, this air campaign was intended to be decisive because the chief of staff for the IDF was an airman. He was Lieutenant General Dan Hullups, the first airman to take the post of chief of general staff. And it was his belief in air power and his belief in um, effects-based operations that he could end the war through the use of air power. Now, it, it transpired that this wasn't the case. And as the air campaign wound on, rocket attacks from Israel were maintained and, in fact, ultimately increased right throughout uh, the war. So clearly the air campaign wasn't working. When it didn't work, when it didn't achieve decision, a second phase was enacted. And these were piecemeal operations uh, by land to effectively capture strongholds of Hezbollah. And they were largely aimed at being um, symbolic. So rather than capturing ground, rather than maintaining a presence within southern Lebanon, they enacted these very costly raids on Hezbollah strongholds. Finally, there was, at the end of the Second Lebanon War, a push to the Litani River. There was this acknowledgement by the Chief of Staff that the military strategy wasn't working. Now, unfortunately, this push to the Litani was largely nugatory and, in fact, aborted, because by that point, the UN Resolution 1701 had already been agreed, and it was yet to come into force, but consequently the push to the Litani, the final phase of the conflict, was ultimately superfluous. Furthermore, the reserves were called up a full nine days after the commencement of hostilities, and the, the perception that this engendered was that things were going badly wrong. Things were going so wrong that we needed to call up the reserves. So if we look at what happened in the Gaza war, we can see that the approach taken was very different. Firstly, there was an initial air campaign. It was extremely similar to the initial air campaign in the Second Lebanon War. It was very successful in many ways, as was the initial air campaign in the Second Lebanon War. The difference was it was always framed as being the first phase in a multi-phase operation. It was never touted as being decisive. And because of this framing, it was viewed as being successful because it set the scene for a joint operation thereafter. So after this initial air campaign, which was deemed to be phase one of Operation Cast Lead, was deemed to be, that was deemed to be very successful. And following that, there was a concerted push deep into uh, territory in Gaza and uh, the IDF they were holding territory. So rather than enacting these piecemeal operations to, um, to make symbolic gestures, they actually held ground. And then after this second phase, there was intended to be a third phase. But the third phase, a push deep into Gaza City itself, was never enacted. Because by this point, the very modest objectives had already been satisfied. And the IDF, could announce a unilateral ceasefire 
which conveyed the perception that victory had already been achieved. And right throughout the Gaza war, some uh, very clear communiques were released by Israel, explaining where they were in the operation. They was at phase one, or is at phase two. So it was always conveying, it was always framing the idea where they were in the operation. And also the operational name itself, Operation Cast Lead, very different to Operation Change of Direction. Cast Lead, Cast in Lead. It conveyed the notion that the strategy itself, rather than being vacillating, was set and was immovable. And rather than cast lead one, two, three, four, it was cast lead phase one, cast lead phase two, conveying this impression that the plan was working, that there was no need to change it. And also the reserves. The reserves were called up at the commencement of hostilities. So it would preclude any perception that things were going wrong. It was always conveyed that it was part of the plan and that they were there should they be needed. So we can see how this perception might be fermented in the minds of the observers. This perception which fostered the view that the IDF were shambolic and incoherent in the Second Lebanon War, but were competent and coherent in the Gaza War. And moving down to the tactical approach. Well, firstly, in Lebanon, it's been argued that IDF were poorly equipped, poorly trained, and had become accustomed to counterinsurgency operations. And furthermore, they were accused of using relatively conventional tactics, techniques, and procedures. And because of this, there was this perception that they'd lost their fighting edge, that they were being outthought, if you like, by Hezbollah. And what's more, they were accused of using grossly disproportionate force. In Gaza, however, this set-piece operation that I've described resulted in high levels of perceived competency and efficiency. And what's more, IDF used a raft of novel equipment, novel procedures, novel techniques. And this fostered the view that they were at the cutting edge of fighting. And they used equipment such as armoured bulldozers, remote-controlled armoured bulldozers, uh, in the form of Caterpillar D9s and uh, Black Thunder. They used gimbal-mounted cameras in spheres which could be thrown into buildings uh, so that you could understand the layout inside the building. They used shoulder-mounted wall breaching munitions and the list goes on and it's unclear how much objective effect this equipment had but it certainly had the effect of those who were observing the war believing that IDF were the superior fighting force. And in fact they were even likened to James Bond such was the uh, advancement of their equipment. And this equipment, it acted as a lightning rod for positive perceptions. It gave those military observers something to hold on to, something to talk about and report on. It was interesting. And also, in the Gaza War, IDF appeared to be determined to engage the enemy, despite the, despite the complex environment. They clearly demonstrated resolve. And... In Gaza, the IDF went to very visible efforts to minimise civilian casualties. They, they dropped innumerable leaflets warning those people who lived in Gaza City itself that there was going to be impending uh, military action. They dropped low-yield 
munitions on houses as a warning shot, if you like, before dropping higher yield munitions. Um, and they even telephoned occupants of buildings to warn them that that building was going to be uh, potentially attacked. They were still accused of using grossly disproportionate force, however. But there were these visible efforts made in order to try and ameliorate that. And then on to information operations. So we've been through the four levels of war, but also in the two conflicts, there was a very different approach to information and the management of information and the narrative. In the Lebanon war, there was what you could describe as information incontinence. There was a new information environment. There were smartphones. There was mobile phones. There was bloggers. There was the internet. There was YouTube. All of these things were, were new and hadn't been considered. And there was a dearth of policy on those aspects. And because of that dearth of policy, there was a cascade of information coming out from IDF soldiers, from civilians who lived in the area, from obviously the media itself. And Israel were overwhelmed by the Hezbollah narrative, Hezbollah being relatively adept at using these new forms of media. And to make matters worse, Israel had an inconsistent message. Message being in Hebrew, Hezbollah. The Hezbollah was inconsistent. So there was different information coming from different departments. The narrative was confused. The rationale for war was, in some cases, ambiguous, and that the aims were sometimes ambiguous. And, as can be expected, there was very critical press coverage. Whereas in Gaza, the media and the IDF soldiers themselves were very tightly controlled. Media was banned from Gaza, largely. IDF personnel were banned from using mobile phones. And a directorate of national information was created to purify the message, to provide a narrative that was unified and consistent. And Israel were very, became very adept at using new media. They blogged. They had YouTube channels. Their YouTube channel, in fact, became the ninth most popular watched YouTube channel of the time. And they bypassed traditional media, going straight to those people who they were trying to convince uh, of their aims, which was the public directly. And because of this, they had total domination over the information domain. And really, Hamas were on the back foot. There was, however, still critical press coverage, possibly because the press had been uh, removed from the area. So what were the outcomes? Well, if we look at the three outcomes from a military point of view, I would argue that Israel were more successful in Gaza than in Lebanon, as they inflicted comparable losses on uh, enemy material, uh, capability, personnel, in a shorter time span and with fewer casualties. However, from a strategic point of view, the outcome, I would argue, is that Israel were more successful in Lebanon than they were in Gaza, as the polit political result following Lebanon was clearly more favourable, objectively, than that following uh, Gaza. But finally, the perceived outcome. Well, I would have to argue that Israel were, in fact, victorious, if you want to use that word, in the Gaza war and defeated in Lebanon precisely because this reflects the dominant perception. And because the notions of victory and defeat are social constructs, 
it can only be argued this way. And of course it's perverse to talk of military victory in uh, a conflict if actually the dominant perception is the opposite to that. So of those three outcomes in each war, which is the most beneficial? And I think it's only that could be answered by Israeli leaders themselves. Is it more beneficial to achieve your strategic objectives but being viewed as having lost? Or is it more beneficial to have not achieved your strategic objectives but having been perceived a winner? It's uh, open for debate. So in summary, history will always seek a victor. People will always want to know and understand who won in war. It's not simply enough for people to weigh up the various outcomes and come to a, an informed conclusion. They want that binary outcome. And also it's clear that the perceived outcome does influence downstream events. It does affect reality, perhaps as much, even more so, than the objective outcomes. And as we've seen, the perceived outcome is not simply a function of the military and strategic outcome. It's influenced by something else as well. And I arg would argue, based upon Israel's experiences in Lebanon Gaza, that it's influenced to a great degree by the approach taken rather than the tangible outcomes. So how, not just what you do, but how you do it. And also, hopefully, I've demonstrated that, certainly in the case of the Gaza war, the approach can actually trump the outcomes. <clears throat> so thank you very much for your attention. And I'll